0: The pipeline to prison can start as early as elementary school, although we have noted in our podcast previously that African Americans are seemingly assumed guilty from birth. Policing tactics have come under scrutiny, and with films like Just Mercy, the court system doesn't fare much better. It's one thing to be arrested by the police, but what happens once you have your day in court? Racial disparity in sentencing has decreased over the years, but the rate of African Americans being sentenced to prison is five times that of whites. What's going on? And can there truly be justice for all? This is Loki Mulholland, and it's time to get uncomfortable. Well, today I'm joined by my co-host, freedom writer, LeVon Brown. LeVon, how you doing? It's good to be here. And our guest today is Judge Rupert Birdsong. Judge Birdsong, how you doing? Welcome.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me, Loki.
0: Hey, now, LeVon, I just want to let you know this isn't a hit job. I'm not setting you up. Judge Birdsong isn't here to open up some of your old cases or anything, okay?
2: I think most of them have been resolved now all right most of them <laughs> I never I, I've learned never say all <laughs> they might come up with something else so but i think i think they, i think they're all done now
0: oh, okay that's good that's good and so uh, um, a little background on, on judge Bird's song so first of all uh uh our, our parents you, you know, my mom and your mom went to school
1: together at Tougaloo. that's correct class of 1964 that's right that's right that crazy white woman <laughs> she's a pioneer
0: oh man i just love talking to your mom though. I mean, uh man the energy she has and stuff i i i can't keep up with
2: her
1: they came up in a different time and yeah we're grateful to have have such awesome moms you know
0: well uh let me give a little background so uh i'm gonna read a portion of your bio here but uh Judge Rupert A. Birdsong was appointed to the bench in 2014 and presently sits in the Stanley Moss Courthouse in Department 28. A founding member of the Association of African-American California Judicial Officers, Judge Birdsong is a frequent lecturer on legal issues. Judge Birdsong volunteers his time mentoring young lawyers and speaks to students in high schools, colleges, and law schools throughout Los Angeles. He also volunteers his time to interview prospective students for Vanderbilt University Law School. Because of his work and contributions to the community, Judge Birdsong was recognized in Ebony Magazine's Power 100 for 2018. Judge Birdsong is a graduate of Morehouse College in 1991 and Vanderbilt Law School in 1994. We're in good company, LeVon. Sounds it. (laughs) (laughs) So, many people will argue that if you don't want to do the time, then don't do the crime. However, we know that the time for the crime isn't the same for everyone. So what's going on here? I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't understand the general process of what actually happens once someone gets arrested through the time that they're sitting in front of you.
1: You basically have three stages. So the, the first stage should be the out in the field when the person interacts with the police officer. Police officer has um, all types of discretion, whether they will make an arrest when they decide to engage. You have uh, a, a, I guess, a tier of of reasons why they may stop somebody. You have a reasonable suspicion or you have probable cause. That is that you've witnessed something uh, in your sight that would lead you to believe that a crime has been committed. So the officer has all kinds of discretion with regard to when they interact with someone in the the field to make an arrest or do some counseling to get them to get on the right track. Um, I had a A small case, this was in traffic, where uh, the gentleman was about, he was in his late 60s, and he got pulled over for not having his lights on. Uh, there's There's a law that says, you know, at night you're supposed to have your lights on, right? So the police officer pulled him over and gave him a ticket and basically set it up so this was going to go to court. Ended up in my courtroom. Now, I counseled, when the case came before me, I asked the officer when I called the case, I said, why are we here? And he said, well, because uh, we had somebody who broke the law. I said, wait, stop, stop, wait a minute. But but why are we really here? I said, let me me put this out there for you to consider. So you see the man, he pulls out of the 7-Eleven, he doesn't have his lights on. When you pull him over and you talk to him, you see that he's not someone who's trying to commit any crimes. He's kind of up there in age, just getting something to drink and, and not anything alcoholic. Just getting something to drink from a 7-Eleven. And as he's pulling out, he just forgot to turn his lights on. So once you, once you saw that and you talked to him and, and discovered that this is why wh- what he was doing at that time, why didn't you advise this man, sir? You know, you need to have your lights on at nighttime. It's not safe. Uh please turn your lights on and have a good evening. You you didn't do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he was like, Well, I said, Well, think about it. Had you done that, a couple of things would have happened. One, you would have enforced the law by asking him to turn on his light. And two, you would have not had to take up, uh, take off on your from your regular assignment to come down to court to testify. He wouldn't have to come down here and miss a day of work to come down to defend this charge, and I wouldn't have to have this case on my docket. When we're really talking about, is this something that we should be spending time on? You have more credibility with the community by having that conversation in the field versus giving them a citation to say that, you know, I, I, I made a, I got a ticket today. That's the type of, of thing that needs to happen more than it, than it does. How do you get people to do that? Well, I, I think what's important is you need to have law enforcement who are familiar with the communities they serve. They probably They sh- It would be nice if they actually came from those communities so you have a relationship, a rapport, and you know the people that you see all the time. Therefore, you, you have an ongoing dialogue about how do we keep the community safe, what's going on, Is people are people doing things that they shouldn't do? And that's how we prevent those t- cases from coming on. Let's go to the second stage. Let's go to where, okay, you have the interaction with the police. The police makes the arrest, and then it gets sent to the prosecutor's office. The DA's office, for example, mm-hmm. the DA also has a lot of discretion with regard to when they review the report to see whether a crime has been committed. Uh, in some instances, is how they interpret the facts, how they interpret the interaction as to whether or not the case is then actually filed as a complaint where the person is charged versus looking at it and dismissing it Um before it even comes to my court and of course the third interaction is when it does come to my court when the prosecutor decides okay a crime is been committed we're gonna file the charge and now it comes before me but then I also have the ability to look at the case based on the appropriate motion from the defense and I can dismiss it before a trial if I see that the facts are not in support of a crime being committed I would do that routinely when I had my criminal assignment. Uh, There would be situations where it was obvious to me that there was racial profiling involved, that the officer had no bases to stop the person, to interact with the person for which they now find quote contraband or discover that they had been driving under the influence. I had a particular case one time where this gentleman, he was a black man. He blew a point two two, which is almost three times the legal limit. A is considered uh, driving under influence and is legal for DUI. However, the basis the basis for uh, stopping him. There was no reason for him to do that. He just, just kind of uh, made up a reason to stop him. And when I questioned him about that, and determined that it was not uh, a reasonable basis to stop him, therefore, you should have never had the interaction. You should have never have discovered that this guy was driving under the influence. And our laws say that when that happens, that's an unfair arrest, and everything that flows from that is inadmissible. So I suppressed. All of that evidence and I dismissed the case. Now, does that mean that I condone the person who was driving an influence? Of course not. And in fact, after I dismissed the case, I brought his attorney back to chambers and let him know. know your client dodged a very significant bullet here. That's because I have to be true and right that there was probable cause that this arrest should have occurred. It wasn't done properly, therefore, I was required to dismiss it. In my view, however, if your client ever does anything like anything like that again, uh, please know that the karma gods are likely not going to be nice to him the next time. So, I hope this is an opportunity for you t- to tell him uh, that he should not drink and drive. So, I did all kinds of things in, in that that one case. I think I I was was fair to this person who was profile who but for me seeing that he would have been thrown into the system he probably would have pled now that puts him on probation for 3 years and that puts him to have to now have a device on his car before he can drive it. I mean so there are all kinds of other complications and implications from that one decision to either let this go forward or to stop it where it should have been stopped. um so, so those are the types of things that happen. And if you don't have people at these different levels in the field, the officer, in the prosecutor's office, and then on the bench, again, I said, those are three opportunities where justice can be made if people have the right conscience, if people are looking at it in the proper way. Or it's also three opportunities where you can get thrown in the system and you know your life has changed forever.
0: My work has taken me to a lot of places and I've been fortunate to meet some incredible people. But when I came to Selma and met Joanne Blackman Bland, I knew I was in the presence of greatness. Joanne was 11 years old when she was attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday in 1965. She wasn't old enough to vote, but understood its importance enough to be there. After Selma is an in-depth look at how our right to vote has eroded since the signing of the 1965 Voting Rights Act the fight for the right to vote continues. Get informed. You can find After Selma on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection.
2: Let me ask a question. So let's take for the instance of the, the officer that pulled the guy over. He didn't have a reason to do that. But let's say he he, uh, he pulled him over. Now, are they trained the way you were thinking uh, when you, when they came before you, are they trained that way, as police officers when they're in the academy?
1: Uh I don't think they have any type of of training that deals with with uh, having empathy and giving people the benefit of doubt. I I, I think they're trained to suspect the worst,
2: right.
1: uh, to to not give the benefit of the doubt, and in particular, uh, they don't have any type of that I'm aware of, and they, we, we hear people talk about it, have the sensitivity training and the bias training so that when they do interact with with people of color, they're not automatically going, okay, we know this person is guilty. and 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 that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, and then it goes on the other side as well, in terms of having the assumption that when the person is white, that everything is cool. Let me, let me give you an example of how, how it works on the other side. And so, again, in my DUI court, there was this um, white woman, she was fairly young, who uh, was in the entertainment uh, industry. I don't think she was famous, but she was uh, someone who had a lot of responsibility and uh, she considered herself to be important. And so she came in for a a probation checkup. To Det- determine if she had done her community service, had she paid her fines, was she going to her AA classes? And, and of course, she hadn't done any of those things. And it was clear to me that she just thought that, well, you know, I would be excused from having to do this because I'm this important person. Right. And therefore, I need to keep it moving. So when she came to me, I'm like, uh, so. Where's your progress? Oh, well, I just wasn't able to do that, but I got this big project back at, at the job, and so I need to get there. I'm like, no, you're not going there. And she said, what? I mean, she was like, 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 like flabbergasted that I was selling her. No, you're not going to just get off. And I said, wait a minute, look here. You have this room full of people who are here to report that they've done the things that they're supposed to do. So is it fair for you not? to do the same things that I'm asking them to do? Or let me put it this way, it would be unfair for me to just let you go when you haven't done the things you're supposed to do. And she was like, but no, I can't. No, I'm sorry, ma'am, that's that's not how this works. And so you know, she had to spend a little time, just spend a little time to deal with that probation violation. So fast forward uh, for her next progress report, and I remembered her as as fast. I mean, You see a lot of these cases. So you don't remember everybody, but I remembered her. I said, "Oh yeah. This, is, <laughs> this was the 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 entitled one who just thought that it was insane that she was not going to be able to go back and do her project. So somebody else going to have to do it." So when she came back 3 months later, you know, I said, "How you doing, ma'am?" And she said, "You know, I'm doing really really great." I said, "Really why?" And she said, "It was because of you. Because when you held me accountable for my actions it caused me to look at myself and to realize that I need to be more responsible and it it really has changed my whole outlook on everything that I do so I, I really want to thank you for doing that and I thought wow I mean I had no idea that I would get that type of consequence simply by not giving her any favoritism which I'm pretty sure some of my other colleagues would have because of her demographic, her status in society.
0: See, and I'm thinking she's playing you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, she she wasn't happy when she had to go to the side door and, and spend, spend a few days in our uh, facilities. <laughs> she didn't appreciate <laughs> that at all. Uh, but again, we've seen so many times when usually someone who looks like her is given that pass, like oh don't worry about it we'll give you more time but mm-hmm. if someone who looks like me oh you're being irresponsible you're not being you're not being what was that? that's you my know, what daughter that was my oh. daughter.
2: oh, oh my gosh man this is... <laughs> Whoa.
1: i'm sorry I thought, These...
2: some... I thought somebody was being choked or something jesus
1: <laughs> right yeah this microphone was a very very sensitive yeah okay
2: yeah all okay.
0: right so so just sorry, just, just just for our listeners there is a child in the background. Not getting <laughs> choked. It's just a child. Okay. okay. So, so now I, want, I want to jump back to this a little bit for a second. Because you you made this comment about, so the guy who um, pulled out of the parking lot, at like the 7-Eleven, didn't have his lights on. Right. Okay. So, African-American?
1: Yes. Okay. He cop was not, white? Cop was white. Yes. Okay.
0: So, was the cop just kind of sitting there waiting for people to come out of 7-Eleven without their lights on? Or like, is it like... I'll let him go down the road for a couple of seconds and see if he actually turns on his lights. Or was he just kind you of just waiting?
1: I think he was in a he was just in a position where he made the observation and mm-hmm. he made the decision to do something. Now, I don't blame I don't blame him for, for that. Right. I actually don't blame him for, for that. In terms it's, of, it's just
0: it's, escalating it to the point right. to bring it into your court. Uh,
1: right. Court. When he when he made the observation, it was appropriate for him to say, OK, hey, man, you know, you need to turn your lights on. But because mind you, we we have had instant situations where people turn their lights out because they're up to, to doing sure. something good. They want to want to hide their, their criminal activities. And I said, once you made that determination that this was not a person who had his lights off for any nefarious reason, that was the time that you use your good judgment to say, hey, right. turn your light on, man. Be safe. Going about your way. You, you. I mean, how hard was that? Yeah, but
0: does is, is, is this become an opportunity for the police to go? Well, now that I've got him pulled over, let me check his trunk. Let me ask a few questions to to see if I can't, you know, find some drugs or
1: whatever else. With that assumption, so I can. And and that we know that happens. Okay, we, we know that happens. And why does that happen? Um, well, I think it's, it's it, you, if you read between the tea leaves, the assumption that. A person of color is out there doing something wrong is, is is an assumption that unfortunately many of these law enforcement people go to right away now not all of them not all of them but but some do and if they have an opportunity now to to make things happen they've been given an excuse to do that. The
2: thing that bothers me about what happened was you first of all let me uh, that happened to a friend of mine. But the cop just told him to turn the light on and go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, you're right. It doesn't happen all the time. The cop just said, you know, he forgot to turn his light on. So turn your light on and, uh, and and uh, you know, have a good evening. But you were talking to a single police officer. And that, that either one of two ways that went was he heard you. And next time he's not going to do that or he's going to do it differently. Mm-hmm. or he heard you and he's going to make sure that the next time he does it differently or he does it the same but he doesn't come in front of you if he can help it
1: <laughs> Well, uh, he won't have so, that choice
2: what bothers me is that there's no way to take what you just said to him and make it part of the policing
1: right I no that's a good point of mine. I I can only hope that when I t- when I put in his spirit, if you do it the way that I told you to do, you are going to have more credibility in the community you are going to be a better law enforcement officer if, if, he, if he were yeah, right if he were willing to share that exchange, um, we'd get some benefit right. How we could take that and put it into their curriculum and training, you are exactly right that that is a missing part. And that's something that, uh, you know, we need to take to, to, uh, to management and those who are doing the training to consider those, those variables. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely.
2: In my
0: other life, I'm a filmmaker, and one of my more fascinating films I created is the award-winning film titled Black, White, and Us. It's about viewing racism through the lens of transracial adoptions in Utah. Utah? Yeah, Utah. It just so happens to be the transracial adoption capital of the world. So what happens when white families who didn't believe racism existed anymore adopts a black child? Find it on Amazon Prime or visit LokiMulholland.com to purchase a copy for your collection. So you have this uh, so a white police officer in a black judge's court. Do you actually, do you experience, so if the bias that's being extended to the supposed felons. Is that also be are you also feeling that bias from those white officers and so forth, the DAs and such?
1: Um
0: or do they know better because you're the judge and you have you know this is your recording.
1: You like think they would know better. I All think right. when I think when I first <laughs> I think when I first got there, there was I got more of a, a pushback because I had a civil background versus a criminal background before mm-hmm. I got on the bench. I was a a employment discrimination litigator and trial attorney. So my, my binary language was about discrimination and and civil rights claims, race discrimination in the sense of employment, uh, harassment, wrongful termination, those types of issues as it relates to employer versus employee. Uh, But so when I got to the the criminal assignment, they're thinking, well, this guy doesn't have the background to understand, but I, ultimately that helped me because i didn't come to that position with a pro prosecution orientation or pro defense orientation i'm seeing this right down the middle if you could establish that something went down then you're good to go if you can't establish something went down no i'm not having it and if y'all didn't cross your t's and dot your i's I'm dismissing yeah. it. I'm absolutely dismissing it.
0: But uh, you know, I uh, said so I'm a white cop and I'm you know, and I pull over you know, I arrest this black guy, all right? I bring him before a black judge, and you let him go. I mean, of course you're gonna let him go. He's
1: uh-uh. you no. black, like,
0: you're black, you know, I mean it's it's a thing.
1: And and that's that is an absolute uh improper and unfair narrative that some people uh could reach that conclusion. But this is how you right. This is how you deal with that. You know, mm-hmm. again, my credibility is is important. Uh, facts are facts. And in those situations where those cases were dismissed, I'm actually asking questions and I am establishing a record that demonstrates one. This officer was not credible. This officer was inconsistent. This officer's response did not match the report. With regard to what he claimed happened and that that's the benefit of, of being able to ask questions you know i was a heck of a trial attorney before i became a judge and so i know how to <laughs> i know how to cross examine the witness you you if you're the witness stand, uh you better have your story uh as straight and tell the truth as much as possible because uh, i i have been trained to see through the uh the crap, if you will, can I say that on this? This, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: oh yeah, Levon says worst on.
1: Okay, I, I can... <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been trained to be able to see through the crap, and then I can can make those determinations. And so the the record is is clear that hey, there was no reason for this to happen. And then I and I've told the prosecutors. He's, now here's here's a scary part, and this is another thing that I'm still trying to find out how this training can take place. So I bring the prosecutor in and I give him the blues. Like, why in the world did y'all bring this nonsense in my court? You know good and well that this should not have been prosecuted. This case should have been dismissed before it got to me. And the word would be, well, the higher-ups wanted us to go forward. Mm-hmm. So you basically have junior prosecutors, young attorneys with not as much experience being told to prosecute cases that they actually don't believe in, but they don't have the ability to say no. Now, that's a problem, obviously. So,
0: so you have cases where people are DAs or whomever are trying to set an example. Exactly. Oh, my gosh.
1: Exactly.
2: Well, remember that, the, the, you know, the, 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 there's politics involved here. So the more cases that this upper, upper the guy in the upper tier gets, the more he the faster he moves up, and he is not interested in. See you sitting there as the judge, so you're one of the few that actually worry about justice. Many of the judges are partners with the police, or they're partners with the DA. The DAs are partners with the junior DAs, etc. So there's the only person sitting there that might be concerned about justice is the judge. And if he doesn't take an active role in the persecution of a person, uh, what happens is he goes to jail because that's points for the, uh, for the VA. That's the problem. I, I think what happens is you find yourself in the middle because you can't tell the juniors what to do and they are afraid to do anything because they might lose their job. Just as how they will, or they won't get the case the next time, so they can't move up. I, I, I think a lot of that
0: goes on. So, so Levon, I guess what, what I'm hearing is, is you get, you have DAs with agendas, political, political agendas. Hey, I want to be tough. I want to be tough on crime. So they they're gonna, they could flood a courtroom with a whole bunch of cases that are right. you know, drug related, and of course, you know, it's you know, if it's drug related, it's probably black people, you know, those right. sort of things, just because of the biases.
2: Exactly. i got X number of convictions, and uh, so it's time for you to move up. Mm. Nobody's worried about what's right and wrong. Uh, They're worried about how many cases they get. By the way, that's why What's Her Name keeps running into problems.
0: Kamala Harris?
2: Yes. That's why she keeps running into problems, because they assume that that's what she did. Mm. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I think that's why. So the judge is the only one that's sitting there that says, wait a minute, uh, let's hold up on this. Maybe it didn't go the way you said. You're the only one, not you personally, but the judge is the only one sitting there who has an interest in justice.
1: Yeah, When, when I'm talking to law students and those who have interest in the criminal justice system, whether they on the criminal defense side or on the prosecution side, I, I'm always trying to put in their spirit you know what we need more black prosecutors mm-hmm. we need we need prosecutors who have a desire to seek justice not to make convictions right and you have to have an enlightened thinking and the courage because the, the, the unfortunately we have witnessed a culture where justice is the last thing on anybody's mind right even though right even though ethically they are bound one to to turn over any exculpatory evidence they're bound by precedent to do that anything that's mitigating they're bound to turn it over and share it with the other side but time and time again we see people not living up to those oaths living up to those ethics and we and we got to get rid of those people those people have no business in those positions of power which will affect the trajectory of someone's life forever.
0: An Ordinary Hero was my first award-winning documentary. It's about the life of my mother, Joan Trumpower Mulholland, and her participation in the civil rights movement. For most of us, our mothers are heroes because they're mothers, and mom is just mom. But when your mother's a civil rights icon, and yet you never really knew it, things change. Go check out An Ordinary Hero and find out how choosing to do what was right Instead of what was easy, help change the world. You can find it on Amazon Prime, or visit LokiMolholm.com to purchase a copy for your collection.
2: Well, how do you how do you get rid of them?
1: That's that's a million dollar question. What what I would, would try to do is, in terms of when I would see it, I would try to impress upon them, you know, your credibility is on the line because just like the lawyers always. Go around asking so what do you think about judge birdsong what do you think about judge birdsong we do the same thing the judges will talk about the, lo- the lawyers who come in who are not prepared who um, are not credible that they try to to push the envelope that doesn't that doesn't is inconsistent with with the facts and so i try to put that that spirit of fear in their heads. like you know if you undermine your credibility with these cases that you know you shouldn't bring forward you're going to have an even harder time getting a, a case that should go forward to be believed. Because now it's like the boy cried wolf. Like, oh, here they come again. Here they come again. And, and sometimes that, that that gets them to, to, to change. And it is about courage. It's about courage. And it's about culture. And, the, and it has to start from the top down regarding, look, our mission here is to get to the truth. And we can't be looking at the scoreboard to see how many convictions we have uh, when we need to have cases resolved and disposed based on the merits. If someone did the crime, of course, they should do the time. But if the system is not carefully evaluating what happened, not um, allowing um, bias to inject uh, improper considerations into these cases, that's that's a problem. It's a problem. Here, here's here's a perspective that that a lot of people don't actually appreciate. Unfortunately, it's because of of the way uh, history has 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 treated you know the criminal justice system and, and people of color. The, the prosecutor's role is to keep the community safe. So, in the sense that when a crime has occurred and you have a victim, and that victim's family is affected by this crime that was perpetrated against them, the prosecutor's job is to protect that family, to protect the community. That's what they're supposed to do. But but history tells us, and case after case has, has told us, that they haven't some, I'm not saying wholesale, some haven't approached it with the objective is to protect the community, is to prosecute People that don't look like them.
0: Well, that is protecting the community because who you're protecting it from? I mean, just like Trump was, you know, hey, white suburbia, you know, right. So you're right. protecting the community by throwing a whole bunch of people of color into prison. Let's get them away from, it. or at least create the illusion that that's taking place. Because most most crimes against whites is from other is from other white
1: people, right. But, yeah, the, but, more the, intra, but the perception
0: crime. is right. Interracial crime is not as big of a thing as intra.
1: That's correct.
0: And so, but the perception is they're going to come and get you. Mm-hmm. Meaning
1: they, meaning black people. And, and, and Loki, don't you? I thought I saw in one of your documentaries uh, historically, didn't we have these? I guess these constables who were hired to make sure that slaves would not run away or to actually recapture them. Is that kind of the genesis of how some of these organizations. Right. Right. uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. uh, Carol Anderson talked about that.
1: And so some of that is, some of that is, is, I guess, cause permeates the culture even today. Yeah. When you think about it in terms of, Hey, our job is not just to prevent crime. Our job is to keep these blacks in in order.
0: Right. Keep them in their place. From uh, not
1: moving freely.
0: Right. Well, then you have the whole system. So the whole system becomes this, you know, I think about like the debtor's prison, which pretty much still exists in respects that, you know, all the fines that are heaped upon, you know, those who, you know, the criminals, right? That even when you get out of jail, you still have this debt you have to pay. Yes, your debt to society in respects that you did at the time, but now you still have, now you have a monetary debt. And you can't vote, and you can't do this, and you can't you can't get a job, and so you could actually be thrown back into prison because you are you know you know you're in arrears. So the whole system is in place to to, to maintain this. I think what we have. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Judge.
2: No, it's sort of like it's, to me anyway. It sounds like what what happens is uh, we will put up, we will tolerate all kinds of crime against us because we don't want to call the police to tell them what's happening. Mm. And when we do call the police, the police overreact typically. And so we just, we keep criminals among us because we don't want to go to the police because the police are unfair. So it's a, it's a self propelling hypocrisy. So,
0: so the black community recognizes that the system is really
1: Not meant for them to begin with,
2: right? So, right. So we tolerate a lot of stuff that we really shouldn't.
1: Right, and that's precisely why why we need to have law enforcement with people from those communities. When they when they go out when they go out to recruit, they should be recruiting from within those communities. People who have know the pulse and the temperature of what's going on in those communities. Someone who's not going to be a stranger someone who understands, you know, the things that are going on. Therefore, we, we don't have this escalation of interaction just because you have uh, something going down.
0: Now, now, let me give you the funky, you know, white perspective on that. Now, this is a twisted perspective because white people don't even recognize this actually already takes place, but it takes place for white people. So to a white person go, well, look, if you have a black cop, the black community, yeah, they're just going to let them get away with stuff. It's like, well, wait a second. White cops already let people in white communities get away with stuff. In respects of going, hey, just, just, just make sure you turn on your headlight. That's what I mean. That sort of stuff. You know, they don't escalate it. White cops escalate things in black communities, uh, but in the white community, you know, hey, Loki, just make sure you turn on your lights again. Okay, I, I'm sorry, officer. Uh, and so there's this, there's this idea that. And LeVon, you know, we, you, you brought this up in, in the uncomfortable truth that uh, you can't win because a, a black elected official, you know, hey, they might actually want to be doing something, you know, to, to solve some problems. But if you do it in the black community, well, now you're just catering to the black folks.
1: Right.
0: So you can't win.
1: You can't. And that's, and that's you know.
0: <laughs> and so, so let me ask you this then. If, if the police, let's say black officers are working in, the, working in black communities, You're not seeing as many arrests because it's like they're not escalating things. And now the chief police going, hey, wait a second, guys, are you really doing your
1: job? But but is that the is that the evidence of of crime in the community arrest? Right. Right. That's when people look at it, depending on what what uh, matrix you're looking at to say, you know, whether they're being effective or not. Of course, if you want to just look at numbers like, oh, they let them get away with murder. But let's look at at, and do a survey of the community in terms of how safe they feel and Mm. what's happening within the community. That's really what, that's the data that they should be evaluating.
0: Well, and then you take a look at the de-escalation. So, for example, uh, just recently with the federal shock troops, whatever you want to call them, because, you know, the, the American Gestapo in Portland, um, once those troops were pulled back, Trump's Homeland Security secret police, once they pulled back, things calmed down. It was amazing. hmm You know, things weren't burning anymore and such. I mean, just, just in a matter of a day or so. And so... There's there's a thing as well, though, uh, and I don't know if you experienced this because I think this is more federal side of things, mm-hmm. but for example, three strikes you're out. And so that was obviously considered rather draconian and because arrest rates were so disproportionate, disproportionately more uh, people of color um, were getting tied to it, right? So there's this tough, get, you know, get tough on crime measures that people supposedly wanted without actually thinking of the consequences or perhaps they were okay with that but judges' hands were tied with mandatory sentencing measures. Mm-hmm. So you end up with crazy stories of people like, um, you know, life prison sentences for stealing a $160 jacket. That was the Timothy Jackson one, who was also a habitual offender. Uh, but Alvin Kennard, uh, he was 22. This was in Alabama. It was 1984. So he stole $50 from a bakery. But the judge had no no other option because Given Alabama state law at the time, it was mandated that since this was his fourth offense, he was sentenced um, for life without the possibility of, of parole for stealing fifty dollars.
1: Yeah, that's that's obviously so over the top. It's over the top. I
0: mean, but it's not necessarily isolated incident either.
1: In California, they um, California has, has its California has its um, its own three strikes, and they the legislature uh, admitted it because of those draconian outcomes that when the that third strike does not involve violence that then you would not get those augmented s- sentences, and that was, was was you know perceived to be a big victory for um, some reform because you know, those outcomes are just way too harsh.
0: Yeah, you're not seeing this, and then on top of that, so one is, you know, obviously the judge's hands are tied to going, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, this this guy does not deserve life without parole for stealing 50 bucks. Yes, this is his fourth crime, but he's not a violent criminal. You know, he needs rehabilitation, not, Mm -hmm. you know, incarceration.
2: The problem is we have a system that does not give credit for uh, the kind of stuff that you're talking about, Rupert Where you keep crime down, You do. we don't have a system that says if a police officer is working in a neighborhood and he keeps crime down, he, people go to him, he resolves problems, That we don't have a way to give that person credit for what he does. We don't promote based on that. We promote based on mm-hmm. the number of arrests. So everything is an arrest. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, that seems to me to, to, to be the problem.
1: Yeah, we again we're talk, talking a culture problem in terms of what uh, categories are worthy and are actually connected to you know doing your job, doing your making making a bunch of arrest just to say you've made arrest is in my opinion is not doing your job, keeping the crime down, keeping the community. Uh, if you survey them and they are happy with what's going on in the community because of this police presence, that's the, the, the more worthy matrix that we need to be evaluating. Right, That shows right. their effectiveness, not the rest. The rest doesn't even scratch the surface. Yeah, right, right. Want
0: right. a great way to help a worthy organization and educate children about the civil rights movement? Visit our foundation, the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation at the jtmfoundation.org. That's the JTMFoundation.org. We are a 501c3 established to help end racism through education. A $5 monthly recurring donation will provide curriculum for 30 students. As my mother used to say, I can't do everything, but I can do something because doing nothing is not an option. If you have wanted to help in this cause but didn't know how, now you can the Joan Trump Power Mulholland Foundation at the jtmfoundation.org. So we have this example in Utah that just came up. So this is the 29th and the 30th of July, 2020. So a man is arrested, faces up to 40 years in federal prison after this large marijuana bus near Wendover, which is on the border of Nevada. And of course, you know, the picture is this police you no know, car, cruiser with, you know, state trooper cruiser with uh, just mounds of marijuana bags and stuff. I mean, like these, like, giant Ziploc bags. The next day, so this guy's facing up to 40 years. A foster mom gets one year in jail after pleading guilty to killing her two-year-old child. I mean, good grief. Women, a, a foster mom gets what? She gets one year in jail after pleading guilty to killing a two-year-old foster child that was in wow. her care. Whoa. And she's a nurse. Now, her picture looks like she's probably the one that was taking drugs anyways. So maybe all this was for her. But at the end of the day, it's like you, know, you see this disproportionate application of the law, which is you know, kind of what we're coming around to. Where obviously, it's the discretion of the judges. But, man, you can get judges who are just as biased as the police or as the prosecutors. Again, that system. And so this is where we come back to what you were saying in regards is we need more black representation, more Hispanic representation, more people of color within the system itself. But what's, yeah. what's,
2: what's, 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 pre- what's preventing that? But before you answer that question, because a lot of people, like when I was in Chicago, a lot of the cops were black and they acted the same way the white cops did. As a matter of fact, they acted worse. We used to have the same problem in New York. So it's, it's. I, I agree with you that you need that, but you need a particular kind of person, whether he's black or white. But if, if, if you want him to be black, then he's black, but he understands what that his job is not to go in and arrest people, but to go in and solve problems.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And none of them are told to do that. So I don't care if we get, And, you know, I'm going to disagree on this, but I don't care if we get a whole bunch of black folks. If their job is not to go in and solve problems, we're going to end up in the same place.
1: I agree. I agree with that. Um, Let's look at let's look at the uh, Latasha Harlins situation in 1992 when the Korean woman. Shot Natasha harlan's in the ba- in the back of the head, uh, mm. unarmed, and the woman got six months probation. Six Jesus. months probation for for shooting an unarmed teenage black girl in the back of the head. Oh my God! Fast forward to today. I'm asking people now, now that I'm you know in this task force about elimination of bias. I'm asking around and. I don't think I have anybody to to say that they would have given that sentence, but no one seems to want to come out and say, Well, why did she give that sentence? Mm. Why 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 would you say when a person takes another person's life that they they don't even go to jail for it? Yeah. And, and, and 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 we're looking at well, it's because because of the victim. And that, that, that's the whole, you know, that's, in my view, that's, that's the quintessential um, philosophic a statement for when we say Black lives matter. When mm-hmm. the life of this teenage Black girl is taken away without justification, legal or otherwise, mm. and there's no consequence for that because... I mean, you've had sentences where, where a dog is killed, and you you spend more time in jail, yeah, than what this woman did. Jesus Christ! So, and of course, you know the riots <laughs> erupted, <laughs> and you know you you can't you can't be surprised that the community would respond to that type of devaluation of a person's life. Yeah. And so, when we look at that, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of going to re- revisit that with my my colleagues as to one how that happened and how we can't let that happen. That there should be, there should be some symmetry between uh, the sentences that are given to white people for the same crimes that black people are committing. Yeah, there, there should not be. Uh, a different scale, a different cheat sheet, if you will, like, oh, so we have a white person in sentence, we're going to pull out these guidelines. For a black person for the same crime, no, we're going to use these guidelines. That's the problem, and that's the problem that that we need to attack in earnest.
0: The, the, the cynical argument would be like, well, you shouldn't have stolen something.
1: You know,
0: if, you, if you weren't stealing something, you wouldn't have gotten shot, you know, that sort of nonsense. But then you layer in... Now, this wasn't in the case of Harlan's case at the time, because I don't think the law existed back then. But this new stand your ground, you know, where you're allowed to actually pull out a gun and you can make up all sorts of excuses as to why you had to shoot someone and kill them. Um, so now, all of a sudden, people you know, can begin, come to judge, jury, and executioner mm-hmm. on, on an instant. Um, but those laws seem to be created to protect those very acts. So it's like, no justice, no peace, Black Lives Matter. Hey, we're offended, but you're, you're, you know, we're, we're really upset that you're killing all of us and nothing's happening. So it's like, all of a sudden, okay, we gotta bring in the court now, right? Okay, we gotta actually start prosecuting this. People are actually catching on that, you know, we're allowing this to take place. But now all of a sudden we're gonna create another law that says, Hey, look, as long as you're standing your ground, you're okay. We're going to create justifications now for why you can do this and create legal parameters that makes it okay to kill a black person. Now we're just legalizing
1: it. Well, it's not uncommon. As history tells us that laws were created and designed to protect white privilege, to advance white rights over black rights. Racial covenant is a quick, easy example, uh, yeah. Made it illegal for blacks to live in certain neighborhoods. To to uh, uh, qualify for certain types of of, of loans, uh, rules were created to prevent blacks from voting. You know, with the grandfather clause, we're familiar with all these different legal devices uh, used to protect that status quo
0: to make white people feel comfortable, feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and then you get to these things. Now you get to a point where, like, recreational and medical marijuana becomes more mainstream, less stigmatized or criminalized when it's discovered that white people can make money on it.
1: Oh my goodness! I so in my in my in my assignment right now, I have quite a few of these dispensary cases wherein you know it's legal out here, and so. Those licenses to, to run a dispensary, it's like the the golden ticket of Charlie Bucket and Willy Wonka. If you have that license, you know, you that's the goose that keeps laying the gold eggs. And there's a lot of litigation between people trying to, to own those licenses outright and various LLCs uh, having fights about that. But by and large, you're not seeing people of color, the ones who are in jail, have these criminal records for... Uh, you know, deal it on the street, but now it's illegal, they don't get to participate. And it's just something that sits in my crawl about that. Whenever I, I have those cases and, you know, lots of money involved, lots of money involved. And at one point in time, it was criminalized and shunned upon. But now it's a thriving, thriving business for which people of color are still Now they're legalized. They're still excluded. Still marginalized.
0: So (laughs) yeah. So and so when white people started self medicating with meth and marijuana, suddenly arresting them
1: wasn't the solution, but treatment was what was needed. Oh yeah, that didn't happen with crack. That didn't happen with crack though. No. Right. (laughs) Right. Right.
0: right. Obviously, I mean, there's the obvious, you know, discrimination based on that. But is there a plus side in respects of that? Well. If treatment is the solution, then maybe we can start viewing that when we within the black community. Is that taking place? Or are we still criminalizing the black community for drug use while we while we uh, provide treatment op- options for for you know, white addicts and so forth?
1: Yeah, I, I don't I don't see it happening. My, I'm not in, in the criminal any, anymore, so I'm not actually I don't know. Yeah, oh, I was just curious. Okay, short answer: I'm not sure.
0: I want you to share this one last story, um, because you and I had this discussion. I thought was so fascinating, um, wherein now I pointed out that uh, when you told the story, it was because the lawyers um, they they didn't see your they didn't see your face; they saw your race,
1: <laughs>
0: right? Oh, dear. Uh, and this is so. The setup is that you were at a conference and you were there to, if if I'm wrong, you're at a legal conference and you're actually there to speak on bias. Oh, yes. (laughs) And so the night before, you are dressed up in the suit, just like everyone else. You're mingling with these attorneys. There's the booths because this is a conference. There's booths there and everything else, and people selling stuff and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone, the majority of the people there are white lawyers. Mm -hmm. And take it from there. Thank you again for listening. Make sure you head to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Loki Mulholland. Show a little love if you can and get access to even more content. Until next time, don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.